Welcome to the 1909, your home at the state news for everything happening on campus and around Lansing. I'm Lily Gwinney. So we have come to our last episode of the 1909 for the fall semester, and it has been a pleasure to bring you all these roundups and cool stories all semester. And I'm excited to say that we'll be back after the winter break with more content from the state news podcast network. So I'd like to give a big shout out to our podcast coordinator, Shakira Maybone, our managing editor, Dina Kaur, our editor-in-chief, Samaya Overall, for supporting a really fun and vibrant podcast setup here at the State News this semester. I personally kind of love having a half hour each week where I just get to gab, so I was pretty happy when I found out that I get to do this again next semester. So this week to take us out, we're going to be recapping an East Lansing City Council meeting, what winter break looks like for local businesses, a portrait unveiling ceremony announcement, and university housing woes. I'm also introducing a segment to the 1909 that I'm hoping to continue in the new year called The Couple Minutes of Just Good News. I know that staying informed and being engaged with news can be draining, especially when it seems like the world is sort of on fire and everything sucks. But we as student journalists have a bit more of an opening to cover positive, uplifting stories about cool people doing cool things, so I just want to make sure that we're highlighting that here. Our first ever couple of minutes of Just Good News today will be the story of MSU's Black Poet Society, which is creating a haven for Black students to express themselves while building writing and public speaking skills. This story is brought to us by our very own Jada Vassar, and I can't wait to tell you guys more about it later in the episode. Then to cap off the episode, we'll be hearing from our environmental reporter, Alex Walters, about a history of divestment at MSU and how climate organizers hope they can use tools from the past to secure change in the future. So let's get into it. The East Lansing City Council decided on December 6th to delay a vote on declaring the city a sanctuary city, citing requests to the city's legal team on effects the status could have and how the status would differ from East Lansing's current safe haven status passed in 2017. The city's Human Rights Commission, later joined by the University Student Commission, passed a resolution last month asking the council to designate East Lansing as a sanctuary city. The designation would mean city officials and law enforcement would not cooperate with federal federal agents to enforce immigration laws. Mayor Pro Tem Jesse Gregg, who is in favor of the resolution, said she was in the audience during the council's 2017 resolution declaring the city a safe haven. The original resolution to declare East Lansing a sanctuary city was softened due to the threat from the Trump administration to withhold funding from cities that declared themselves as such. However, at least for the next couple of years, the city won't have to worry about the threat of withheld funds as a result of the Biden administration's stance on the matter, according to East Lansing City Manager George Lahanas. According to Greg, East Lansing already upholds the policies that support the mission of a sanctuary city. However, it hasn't committed itself to the full sanctuary wording. Attorney Anthony Chubb said the 2017 resolution changed policy to where the city refused to participate with federal authorities as it related to unfair treatment against people with immigrant or refugee status. Under the new proposed resolution in 2022, the East Lansing Police Department would continue to operate as it has been since the 2017 policy change, which includes acting on violations of law or judicial orders like warrants. According to Chubb, there is no statute defining a sanctuary city, but the term was used to combine local governmental entities that aim to adopt pro-immigrant policies. The Board of Trustees is set to hold a private unveiling ceremony for the portrait of former MSU President Luana K. Simon on December 19th. Simon's portrait was part of her 2019 retirement agreement with the board, and the ceremony was not part of the agreement, according to Deputy Spokesperson Dan Olson. 
Simon officially retired from the presidency on August 31st, 2019, after resigning in 2018 at the height of ex-MSU doctor Larry Nasser's sentencing. In November 2018, Simon was charged with two counts of lying to a peace officer in a violent crime investigation and two counts of lying to a peace officer in a four-year or more crime investigation. All four of those charges were dismissed in May 2020. Simon will be attendance at the ceremony, according to Olson. Trustee Melanie Foster has said she will also be attending, while trustees Renee Kanaki-Jefferson and Rima Vassar do not plan to be present. In response to an email from the State News asking if she would be attending the ceremony, trustee Brianna Scott said, in all caps, no. The rest of the trustees did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Olson said he had no comment on the reason for the ceremony, and board chair Diane Byram did not immediately respond to requests for comment. In other MSU news, the MSU Housing Assignments Office sent a message on November 17th to 95 incoming students telling them that they would not be provided housing in the dorms for spring semester. Prior to receiving the message, incoming students who wished to live on campus filled out interest forms. Although 70% of those students were given on-campus housing, the other 30% were told there was not enough space for them in on-campus housing and were given off-campus resources. Additionally, due to residence hall organization, the university was able to provide housing to all of the women students, but not men. Associate Director for Communications and Residence Education and Housing Services, Bethany Bulks, said the issue came, from, came down to an unexpectedly large number of spring-admitted students. This comes after the reinstatement of MSU's new two-year live-on requirement, which requires freshmen and sophomores to live in the dorms. When alerted that their children wouldn't be provided housing, many parents took to the MSU Class of 2026 Facebook group to express frustration over the fact that MSU's new policy had seemingly backfired. However, Balk said the new policy does not change the amount of of available housing, as the same number of people are still living in the dorms to ensure that new admits have space. The students who did not receive housing for the spring were told that their two-year requirement would be waived. In response to these complaints, the university sent out another email telling those students that they could still choose to live on campus for the fall of 2023. Bulk said that the high number of students has been a trend since the pandemic. Many Big Ten schools, she said, have experienced higher numbers of students who wish to live on campus. As a result, housing has been meeting with admissions to determine what adjustments still need to be made to the system. Public Policy Senior Sky Stillwell, who works as Vice President of Membership for Spartan Housing Cooperative, said that they cannot meet student demands for housing. Stillwell said that co-ops just aren't able to accommodate all of the students looking to find spring housing. She said, quote, We feel bad turning them away, but we don't have the spots to serve them. Speaking of housing, we've got some helpful advice for you guys today. As the semester comes to a close, many students will be leaving their on- and off-campus housing in that mass exodus back to our parents' or families' basements and childhood bedrooms. So before leaving, here are several steps students should take to prepare their houses or apartments for the winter. East Lansing landlord Matt Hagen said that his association, Hagen Realty, sends out an email to all of its tenants before winter break listing preparation steps to take if they will be leaving. At the top of the email in large, bold red text, it says, do not turn your furnace off. Leaving your heat on is necessary because pipes can freeze and break without adequate heat, Hagen said. He said his company has seen the consequences of residents turning off the heat during the winter. He recommends that the tenants keep the heat at a minimum of 60 degrees while they're gone. While slightly lower temperatures might be okay in some houses, Hagen said it's risky because not all parts of the house heat up the same, and it's not worth taking the chance. 
The second tip that Hagen Realty gives tenants is to remove any hoses attached to the outside of the house. Similar to the inside of the house, when water isn't fully drained from the hose, it can freeze in the pipes and cause them to burst when they warm back up. The city of East Lansing has its own policies dictating when snow and ice need to be removed, and students may be at risk for a ticket for not shoveling while they're gone on break. Igan said his company offers to clear its tenants' sidewalks for a small fee, which ends up being considerably cheaper than if somebody were to get a ticket. If you have a driveway or sidewalk on your rental property, it's worth checking to see if your landlord offers a similar service, since we all know how unpredictable Michigan's winter weather can be. It's also important that tenants lock all their doors and windows and take home any valuables that are easy to move. Hagen said students should remove window air conditioners if they're still up because they can be easily removed from the outside. He said that unfortunately, all criminals and thieves know that the students are leaving as well and that, quote, this time of year, that's when they come to town and look to steal stuff. If you still have your air conditioner in the first floor window, they can walk up to it, pull it out, and gain easy access. In that same vein, as MSU students leave East Lansing to ring in the holidays, the city's bars, restaurants, and shops are left having to adapt. Occupancy will fall short, staff will be reduced, and new ideas will be tested out for the new year. Most local establishments will stay open during the break, but expect to see some schedule changes. Barrio, East Lansing's branch of the chain providing tacos and margaritas, will be closed Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day. Other than that, they'll be running as usual with a few changes. Barrio manager Callie Stahl estimated occupancy will be 50% less over the holiday. With that in mind, the restaurant will be scheduling fewer staff members to work. During Thanksgiving break, Barrio didn't cut down on staff as they believed occupancy could go either way. As it fell on the low side over the long weekend, the staff learned their lesson, Stahl said. Inventory will also take a cut so that less spoiled food will be thrown out. And Barrio isn't the only establishment with new plans for the new year. Max Saylor, manager at Harper's Restaurant and Pub in P.T. O'Malley's, has a few ideas up his sleeve. In previous years, the establishment has given back to charity during the holiday season and hopes to continue with it this year. In terms of occupancy, Saylor expects to see a decent drop some nights based on previous breaks. To adjust in the decrease in customers, staff members will be given a few days off during break. However, once New Year's Eve comes around, it will increase staff by about 50%. Harper's expects to be open for all of winter break with a few exceptions like Christmas Day. It will be posting updates on its Instagram, including hours and promotion. For DBN Boutique, a women's clothing store located on MAC Avenue, founder and owner Onyla Taggart expects to be open for most of the winter break, except for a quick trip to New York City where she plans to meet with models and create more content. For that period, Taggart emphasized the boutique's online store where customers can browse their selection. She plans to have a few promotions before break starts, and the store also plans to have a sale, but she's not dishing out details yet. So now it is time for our couple minutes of just good news. MSU hosts over a thousand student-led organizations ranging from the arts to technology and everything in between. The Black Poet Society, or BPS, is one of them, with the primary mission of creating a safe space for students to build writing and public speaking skills in the form of poetry. Psychology junior Joya Bailey, president of the Black Poet Society, said the organization promotes love and encouragement. Hosting a club representing Black poetry can be challenging on a large, predominantly white campus like MSU. Black students often find themselves as the only person of color in classes or clubs, and recognition can be sparse. There are not many times I walk into a classroom and see people that look like me, Bailey said in an email to the State News. Because of this, it's a lot harder to ask for help or form study groups within those classes. 
I organize this organization as a place people will be able to go to express the injustices they might feel on a daily basis and a place for people to share pressing feelings and meet people who are there to support them. The Black Poet Society plans to soon host workshops and open mic nights tailored to helping students get comfortable with public speaking and embracing their creative side. So far, they've had general meetings and bonding opportunities to check in with members and help spread the word about the organization. Bailey said that BPS has hopes of hosting an open mic night next semester, as well as a poetry slam at the Wharton Center. Meetings will also have guest speakers coming in soon to lead workshops and build connections with BPS writers. Advertising management junior Kaj McFarland said that spreading the word about poetry has been a smooth ride so far, and that she hopes more people will come out and see what the BPS is all about. So if you'd like to follow along with the Black Poet Society or are interested in getting involved, drop them a follow on Instagram. Their handle is at BPSMSU. So now I'd like to reintroduce Alex Walters. Alex has been on the 1909 before, but he's back to tell us about a recent story that I found pretty interesting. So hi, Alex. Hi, it's good to be back on the 1909. Very exciting. Yeah. So your story covered a fact about MSU that could be called sort of a relatively unknown part of university history for current students. So tell us a little bit about South Africa divestment. Yeah. So I actually first came to this story. Well, I mean, I've been, you know, first of all, covering divestment uh, since I started here at the State News with the current push, right, which is for divestment from fossil fuels. In 2018, MSU says, you know, we're going to divest. We're going to be like all the cool, great, sustainable universities. And they do it most of the way, but they leave about $90 million in investments. And to this day, there's a group called Sunrise, which is part of this national environmental movement. And they're pushing for full divestment at MSU, even from private investments. And then a couple weeks ago, I was in actually my MC201 class, which (laughs) you would know, really. Oh, yeah. And in one of the lectures, a professor made, it was sort of a passing comment about divestment at MSU from South Africa in the 70s. This is something I didn't know about. I don't think most students know about this history. No, I think it's it's Um, definitely an uh, under-acknowledged fact about our history here at MSU. And so I I was fascinated by it, you know, just hearing divestment at MSU. I was like, that's for me. (laughs) Um, And so I started, you know, looking into it and reading these different historical journals that have been written about it. And there's a lot of actually history, uh, like history work done about it. I think a lot of MSU historians, it's fun to kind of do like Mm -hmm. history work about a place that you know so well. But so I started reading about it. And basically it's, you know, it's the same thing as today where people are saying, you know, we want this university that we give a lot of money to. If they're going to invest that money, we want them to do it in a way that we're comfortable with ethically, not just what they think will make the most money. Um, And it's the same thing. In the 70s, in 1972, a group of students and faculty come together and they say, you know, we're super uncomfortable with what's going on. Like, we don't want you investing in apartheid. And so we want the board to divest and invest ethically, invest in communities that we care about. And yeah, and they were successful, actually. Yeah. An inspiration, we, I guess. Yeah, and they their, their sort of fight for divestment from South Africa, that took six years, six or seven years? Yeah, so over the fr- it was six years to get the board to do it, but they actually were also working on the city council in East Lansing at the same time. And so that happened in 77, and then in 78, the board actually unanimously votes to divest, Mm -hmm. which is impressive. And we know from experience here today that getting a unanimous vote on on the MSU Board of Trustees and in the East Lansing City Council, those are tall orders. So that's, that's a pretty interesting piece of history. And you actually had the opportunity to speak with one of the organizers from the 70s. And what kind of experiences did they have on campus? Yeah, you know, it was pretty incredible. I didn't think I'd be able to, to talk to these two, but they were at the last minute became available to me, and it was great. Um, and one of them, his name is David Wiley. He's a, he was a professor at MSU for a very long time. He's the national president of the African Studies Association, and he was actually on MSU's campus when all of this was going on. So he was able to provide a lot of firsthand insight. 
And the way that he talked about it, I think, you know, there are a couple big distinctions from what we see today. The first one is just, um, I mean, just, frankly, there's just more. They were just more, I mean, there were pins everywhere. They used a lot of, like, apparel like that to get their message out. They did sit-ins multiple times at the um, administration building, the Hannah building, where they would, for days at a time, just camp out in the building to <laughs> protest. Uh, they built... Famously, they called it a shanty. Like it was like a little shed mm-hmm. alongside of the Red Cedar. They occupied, and it, it was up for a little bit, like I think a couple weeks until it was destroyed by yeah. counter protesters. <laughs> but there was just, he, he describes it as just this energy on campus of people that just, um, they just cared about it and they wanted it. And so everybody knew this was going on. Whereas today, I don't know if ev- every MSU student knows about the fight to divest. Yeah. So Sunrise is obviously pushing for a really similar divestment scenario, you know, to pull that remaining pesky uh, 90 million out of MSU's investment portfolio. So how might, just in your opinion, after learning all about this, how might today's activists take notes from the past in this case? I think there, you know, uh, I don't know if I should say that today's activists just need to be doing more because I don't think it's a function of the activism. I think it's more apathy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't think it's that the activists, I should clarify really, is that I don't think the activists were necessarily like, more passionate, and that's why you saw more of it on campus. Mm-hmm. I think it was just over time, more people made it an issue, mm-hmm. um, and I guess that is a function of the activism. I don't, I'm not really an expert on that. Um, <laughs> but the one thing there, I mean, are two major differences that I see that I think they could think about. Mm-hmm. The first one is that, and this is actually a point that was brought up by Wiley and Chris Root, who's his wife for a long time. She was also on MSU's campus, and now she runs an organization that, but an online archive called the African Activist Archive, just about, you know, protests over Africa in the United States. Mm -hmm. And what she was saying and what her husband was saying was that there was just cooperation between faculty, between grad students, between PhD students, even administrators and employees of the university outside of the teaching staff. And it was this broader coalition, right? And one Mm -hmm. of these stories they pointed out is that the head tennis coach at MSU had this sort of arrangement where he would do these private tennis lessons with the presidents and the top administrators because they were all playing tennis at the time. <laughs> and he would lobby them on the tennis court about divestment in South Africa. And they just sort of had, I don't know, they had their hands in all the different pots and all the different yeah. like layers, I guess, and levels at MSU. Mm-hmm. And they say that was a big part of getting the change. Yeah, um, and we know from just observation that today the Sunrise Movement is pretty much entirely undergraduates. And they, yeah. they might not have the same opportunity to get all of those resources at every level of the university that you're saying is kind of an attributing factor. It's definitely more undergraduate. And they do have, you know, they have ASMSU support. I think uh, COGS, the graduate student organization, has supported them but just isn't really a part of it. But the second thing that, um, that Root was saying is that maybe it's not so much the organizing and maybe it's just an issue of, MSU doesn't really have the, she calls it political energy to be mm-hmm. talking about this right now. And she has this quote, which I'll just read it. Yeah, go ahead. Because she says it very nicely. She says, Title IX is an enormously important issue that's taken a lot of political energy at MSU. Some of it doing important political work and some of it just being a horribly bad administration that's damaged many, many people at MSU and MSU's national reputation. So, you know, that's been there. Mm-hmm. And what she was saying to me was that, you know, there might not be room for two discussions right now at MSU over yeah. all of the turmoil on the board, the resignations, the presidential search, the Title IX issues, and also divestment. That maybe it's mm-hmm. just kind of getting lost in that, and that's maybe not something that the organizers can overcome right now. Yeah. I mean, we are still very much here at MSU dealing with the aftermath of Larry Nasser and dealing with all of the fallout that's happened amongst administration since dealing with that. So that's an interesting point that you bring up that – even as much as organizers might want it to be a uh, multi-issue board, it might just not be for the moment. And it might be 
you know, like the South Africa divestment effort, it might be a multi-year project. And I think that's another thing that they said to me was that seeing that it took them, you know, six years to do this, right, when it was sort of the main issue that was being debated at MSU, um, that's encouraging for them, right? Because this is only about 2018, Divest MSU was founded and Sunrise didn't really get involved until a little bit later, until 2020. Mm -hmm. And so for them, they kind of see that as like, it's not look at this great thing that happened before, we're not living up to it. It's look at how long it took, look at how much perseverance these people needed, and we're going to continue that and we're going to keep doing that. And um, Jesse Estrada-White, who's the Sunrise organizer I talked to, talks about that a lot in the piece. Mm -hmm. So give it a read if you have Yeah, and one of the things I remember him mentioning was, you know, they're a young they're a young movement. They're not just in terms of their age, but, I mean, yeah, like you said, this is a relatively new thing. And here at MSU, divestment, you know, it might have a longer timeline, but they do have this blueprint um, from the 70s, which is a really just a really interesting thing to look at because you don't get to see that a lot nowadays where there are direct parallels between activism today and activism in the past. Yeah, but I, I almost think that more broadly, uh, I mean, all activism is sort of inspired by, and that's what Root talks about at the very end of the piece, which is that she thinks, and there's less, you know, I think uh, documented history to demonstrate this, but the fact that these organizers come to MSU's campus where as they're sort of entering their political lives, right, as they're in high mm -hmm. school, they're seeing anti-war organizing, and they're seeing so many young people out demonstrating about what they care about. And so that sort of, you know, inspires them to do this. And then today, this inspires the organizers today. Who knows what they'll inspire when somebody else is at MSU in, you know, 50 years. But um, it is sort of like that chain in that way, and I think that's really nice. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting historical story, and I'm glad that we got the chance to talk about it because I think, first of all, anyone who's interested in divestment here on campus or anyone who's just interested in just any sort of political organizing here on campus, this is a really interesting note to look at. And I'd encourage everyone listening to go out and read the story. And Alex, you want to take us out by just telling us what the headline for the story is? Headline is, 50 years after divestment victory, can MSU do it again? And that actually brings us to the end of our episode of the 1909 for the day. Thank you for coming on, Alex. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and have a great winter break, everybody. And you can find us on Mondays coming back from break. Obviously, it'll be a little minute before we are airing on Mondays again, but wherever you get your podcasts. And signing off from me, Sansing, I'm Lily Gwynny.